In 2014, a 22-year-old woman was taken into custody for unpaid fines in Western Australia. Less than 48 hours later, she was dead. It took six years and a lot of work on the part of her family to even make a dent in the policies that led to her death. But will these changes be enough? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to August's third Thursday episode. Every third Thursday in 2020, we will explore another case of a missing or murdered Indigenous woman or girl, and we are back in Australia this month. I want to thank Brooke for recommending this one to me. This case had a full inquest, so we are not lacking in information or in detail here, the way we often come up against these things. In fact, most of the details in this episode have come from the coroner's report. In a previous episode where I discussed the death of an Aboriginal Australian woman, I mentioned the practice of name avoidance after someone's death. It didn't apply there, but it does apply here, so let's talk about it. This is not a current practice for all tribes, but it used to be much more widespread pre-colonization. Though less common today, many Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders still practice name avoidance after someone has died. Many do. For a period lasting a year or up to several years after the death, the person is simply not referred to by their first name. There are a couple reasons for this. In part, it is to allow their spirit to rest, but it's also out of respect for the pain of the grieving family to not hear the name over and over again. As Aboriginal activist, educator, artist, Miriam Rose Ungamir Bauman said, Indigenous Australians own their grief, and they allow it to heal slowly. In more modern times, name avoidance has expanded to include photographs of the deceased. I'm sure you can see how this practice comes in direct conflict with media reporting on murders, which is what we talk about here on Crime Lines. The Australian Broadcasting Company and other media outlets have begun running a disclaimer that basically tells Indigenous Australian readers or listeners that there will be mention of a deceased person or an image of them. And then they proceed to name them and publish the photographs. Maybe I am interpreting this wrong from the outside, but to me, this sounds like they're saying the public's right to know someone's first name and what they looked like supersedes their sincerely held religious and cultural beliefs and the beliefs of their families. So I could start this episode with a disclaimer and then just start using the name of the woman we're speaking about tonight. But what would that bring you? What would you gain knowing her first name? Absolutely nothing. Who could that hurt? Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders. So when I could choose between hurting no one or hurting someone, I'm always going to go with hurting no one. The woman we are speaking about today has been simply known by an honorific and her surname, Miss Jew. That's D-H-U. So that is what we will go with. It has been six years since Miss Jew, a member of the Yamachi Nation, died. Her family may be slowly starting to use her first name again, but in the most recent article that had family participation, her first name was not used. And I've seen on social media where, in general, they're using nicknames and sister rather than her first name, so I will not use it. Her photograph, however, has been shared by the family, so when you see me post it on social media, it's because I'm following their lead. Miss Jew was born in December 1991 in Western Australia. The town she was born in is Port Hedland, and it is 
18 hours up and around the coast from Perth. If you know anything about Western Australia, you know it takes up a lot of land, and most parts are very sparsely populated. When Ms. Jew was three, her parents, Della Rowe and Robert Jew, separated, and she moved in with her maternal grandmother, Carol, who raised her in a warm and loving family environment a bit closer to Perth in Geraldton. Della and Robert remained very active in Ms. Jew's life, and they were very close, even though her grandmother was raising her. As Ms. Jew grew up, she was headstrong and energetic. She participated in learning Aboriginal dances, and she did well in school. After year 11, she trained to be a receptionist. But Ms. Jew could be a little temperamental, and she stood up for herself, maybe even at times when she should have just walked away. This led to a few low-level offenses when she was a teenager, such as swearing in public. I was surprised to read that cursing in public is an offense in Australia because I have been told Australians don't view swearing the way Americans do. So how is this law even enforced in a society where offensive language isn't seen by most as all that offensive? And the answer is with inequity. In New South Wales, for instance, 3% of the population is Indigenous, yet 33% of those taken to court for offensive swearing in public are Aboriginal. So maybe how accepted cursing is in Australia depends on who you are. Even with these small brushes with the law and occasional spats with friends and family, Miss Jew didn't hold grudges. She remained a happy person. She stayed close to her family, even the ones she was fighting with here and there. But no one in the family would say she didn't have that strong-willed, do-what-she-wanted attitude. So we can have the dateline, she lit up a room trope, and have someone who's also a bit temperamental. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Miss Jew did end up having a more serious arrest in 2010 when she was arrested for disorderly conduct. What happened is a police officer told her to move from wherever she was, and she did not comply. So the officer decided to place her under arrest for not complying. And as she was being handcuffed, Ms. Jew kicked the officer. Now, arresting young Indigenous Australians for low-level offenses like cursing in public and not complying with a command is not uncommon, and it has led to the detention rates that I had to read twice to make sure I hadn't misunderstood. In Western Australia, Indigenous youth, defining that broadly as teenagers, make up 6% of the population. Yet 71% of youth detained by police in 2016 were Indigenous. In these various cases, Miss Jew was issued fines by the court. The fines would end up growing to be around 3,600 Australian dollars, which is about 2,500 U.S. dollars. Miss Jew, who was still a teenager at this point, did not have the means to pay these fees, and so she didn't. In 2013, when she was 21 years old, Miss Jew started seeing a 42-year-old man named Dion Ruffin. And Dion had previous convictions for domestic violence, which Miss Jew didn't know about, and he was a meth addict. Now, he brought both of these things into this relationship. Miss Jew began using methamphetamines, though not daily. She was, by her own admission, an every two-week user. Because the frequency she used kind of falls somewhere between a recreational user and a chronic user, her withdrawal symptoms were generally not severe. A more immediate threat to Miss Jew was her boyfriend, Dion, himself. As their relationship continued over 2013, her family saw a huge change in her. 
She became withdrawn, she started losing weight, and she stopped a lot of the self-care as her self-esteem tanked. She wasn't working, and her life became increasingly unstable. Her family, of course, saw this happening and tried to intervene. They didn't like Dion. They saw him right in front of them be rude and demeaning to her. And if that's what he was like while her family was watching, they could only imagine what he was doing when they weren't. Around Christmas 2013, which was also around Miss Jew's birthday, she showed up at her mother's house with bruises. She acted evasive when her mom asked her about them, but Della knew they were from Dion. In April, which would be right around Easter 2014, Miss Jew and Dion got into a fight. According to Dion's later statements, Miss Jew stabbed him in the leg with a pair of scissors during an argument. He fell to his knees, and Miss Jew held him from behind in a headlock. He grabbed at her, got a hold of her shirt, and pulled. She came up over his shoulder and landed on an object on the floor, injuring her ribs. Now, this is Dion's say-so. That doesn't make it true, and it definitely doesn't make sense because Dion took Miss Jew to the hospital a day or two later because she had continued pain and swelling on the side she landed on. Dion, however, did not seek any medical attention for this stab wound. Dion claimed he was stabbed in the leg to the point that he fell to his knees and he struggled to get out of a headlock that his much smaller girlfriend had him in. His only solution was to throw her off of him. But when he went to the hospital with Miss Jew, he didn't seek any medical assistance. When he was asked about this inconsistency in his story, Dion said the cut was actually really small because they were a tiny pair of scissors. By his own description of the wound, when pushed, he described a scratch and he threw her on the ground. To justify that, to justify throwing her over his shoulder, he characterized a scratch, if it even happened, as a stabbing. Anyway, at the hospital, Miss Jew told the attending doctor that she had slipped on some rocks a couple of days before. She did not disclose the abuse. They did an x-ray, which came back normal, so she was sent home with a diagnosis of a bruised chest wall. She had actually fractured two ribs, but as can happen, the break did not show up on the x-ray right away. Sometimes that can happen with fresh breaks. The doctor gave Miss Jew some pain medication and told her to follow up with her general practitioner if the pain persisted or she experienced shortness of breath. Soon after this, Miss Jew visited her grandmother Carol and confided in her that Dion was abusive and she wanted to leave. Carol told her she would help her, so Miss Jew went back to the house to get her things. When she returned to Carol's house, she had a bloodied mouth. Dion had hit her when he realized she was leaving. Carol knew she had to get Miss Jew out of town to break the cycle of abuse let her get away from Dion so she could be safe, so she could heal from what the relationship had done to her, and so that she can get back on her own two feet. Carol made arrangements for her to go stay with family 11 hours away, back towards the town where she was born, and Carol even paid for her bus fare there. Ms. Jew planned on starting a new training course, and start working towards getting back on her feet. But Dion figured out where she was and made contact. He not only made contact, but he moved all the way over there. He moved into the same region and convinced Ms. Jew to reconcile and to move into a rental home with him. Ms. Jew was living with Dion on August 2nd, 2014, when someone called the local police in South Headland. Unbeknownst to Ms. Jew, 
Dion had a warrant out for his arrest for violating a domestic violence protection order a former partner had taken out on him. The tipster was calling in Dion's whereabouts so the police could go pick him up. The caller was anonymous. To this day, we do not know who made this phone call. Around 5 p.m. that same day, two police officers went out to the house to arrest Dion. They found him there and took him into custody without issue. They also arrested Ms. Chiu because she had a warrant out. It was issued three months before, and it was for those fines from her previous arrests, those fines that she did not pay. Western Australia at the time had a law that allowed people to be arrested for these outstanding fines. They would spend a few days in jail to have some or all of their fines forgiven. It was something around a $250 a day payoff towards the fines for staying in jail. Miss Jew's warrant was for her to serve four days in custody. Some of these fines were five years old at this point. As you can imagine, this imprisonment over failure to pay fines impacted those of a lower socioeconomic status much more than anyone else. Not only did they not have sufficient income to pay the fines, they also didn't have family who could help them. Many would go on payment plans and then default if they lost their job or had some other major financial come up like a costly car repair. And like any debt, once you default, it's difficult to come back from it. When marginalized communities are at a greater risk of poverty and they are disproportionately being targeted for arrests for offenses that end in a fine, you end up with a large number of persons of color jailed for unpaid fines. After Miss Jew was arrested, she arrived at lockup and got out of the police vehicle. She can be seen on the CCTV footage walking with some difficulty. She was asked what was going on, and she said she had a broken rib and that it was hurting. She asked if she could see a doctor and was told no. During intake, Miss Jew was categorized as a low risk given that her health seemed fine and her mental state was good. But again, CCTV showed her walking into the cell block, leaning to the right. She entered the cell at 5.31. By 5.53 p.m., the video in her cell shows that she is grabbing her side. At 7.40, Miss Jew pushed the call button, and Constable Carrie Sharples responded. Constable Sharples was relatively new on the job, and she saw that Miss Jew wasn't doing well, so she notified the shift supervisor. The supervisor, Sergeant Ronald Pratchett, went to the cell. He said he was basically just trying to assess if Miss Jew was actually in pain or if she was malingering, or possibly was she just coming off of an illicit drug. While Miss Jew admitted that she had used drugs the previous day, Sergeant Pratchett believed she was likely truly in pain so he made arrangements to have her taken to the Headland Health Campus, which we'll call HHC going forward. Due to an issue with having a vehicle available for transport, Miss Jew didn't go to the hospital until nearly 9.20. Around 8.40, Constable Sharples decided to let Miss Jew out of her cell to sit in a more comfortable room while she waited. So regardless of what comes next, it's clear Constable Sharples was concerned with Miss Jew's well-being. And as Miss Jew was moaning and crying from the pain, Constable Sharples was coaching her through some breathing exercises. When Sharples asked Miss Jew how she injured herself, she said she fell a few months ago, but then she fell again recently, which re-injured her side. When it came time to get into the vehicle to go to HHC, Miss Jew was able to walk on her own, but she was clearly in pain. 
I mean, remember, this is a jail, so there are cameras, many with audio, everywhere. That's how we know so much about exactly what happened and when. At the hospital, though, we mostly have to rely on the memories and testimony of those who were there. The record-keeping of this visit was not as good as it should have been, presumably because they were very busy that night. In triage, the nurse put Ms. Jew on the second least urgent tier in her assessment based on Ms. Jew's vital signs being normal. The nurse had also been told by one of the constables that transported Ms. Jew that she hadn't complained about any pain until she was told they were holding her in jail overnight. Then she suddenly started complaining. While this may be technically true, the gap in time between her arrest and learning she was staying overnight was not very long. It's not like she was fine for an hour and then suddenly in pain. Her arrest was at 5 p.m., and within 30 minutes, she had already asked to see a doctor. Maybe she didn't mention it right away because she was a little surprised at getting arrested. It doesn't appear like she was aware of the warrant. It just seems the framing of what the nurse was told by the constable gave her the wrong impression of what was happening here. Anyway, Miss Jew was seen by Dr. Ann Lang at 9.35 p.m. The doctor was also told by one of the constables that Miss Jew's complaints didn't come on until she found out she was going to be held. The examination of Miss Jew took a few minutes. She was prescribed a pain medication and a diazepam, a.k.a. Valium, and discharged. Dr. Lang later said she believed Ms. Jew's pain was musculoskeletal, but her notes don't reflect that. What she did write down was that this was of, quote, behavioral gain, and her diagnosis on discharge was, quote, behavior issue. Dr. Lang did tell them to bring Ms. Jew back if her condition worsened, which, if you've ever been to the emergency room, they always say that. Ms. Jew, still in pain, was returned to her cell. She was checked on roughly every hour overnight, with one cell check being noted that she was making a moaning noise. The next morning, on August 3rd, Ms. Jew was taken to the shower around 7.45. She walked to the shower and back on her own, though she did complain about her side hurting. According to the constable that had taken her to the shower, she was offered medical attention, but she turned it down saying she just wanted to get some sleep. It was after 1 p.m. when Miss Jew used the call button to call for help. After the fourth time pressing the button, the shift supervisor, Sergeant Rick Bond, went to her cell. She complained about the pain, so he gave her an acetaminophen, for those who don't know, that is a mild, over-the-counter pain reliever. In the U.S., it is brand-named Tylenol. About an hour later, around 3 p.m., Miss Chu wasn't any better, so Sergeant Bond said she could go home sooner than the four days if she or her family could pay a reduced portion of her fees. She gave Sergeant Bond the number for her father, Robert, who she thought might be able to help. Sergeant Bond called and asked Robert if he knew of any reason why his daughter would be in pain like this. There was some conversation about drug use, and Robert got the impression that's what was being said here, that she was going through withdrawals. Robert wanted to help get her out, but he didn't have the amount of money required. He asked if he could speak to his daughter and was told he couldn't. About 40 minutes after that phone call, Miss Jew started pushing her call button again. In less than a half an hour, she pushed it five times before getting Sergeant Bond to her cell. She told him that the pain was becoming more generalized. Rather than just having rib pain, 
She was in all-over pain. Sergeant Bond decided to have her sent to HHC again for another check. When she arrived just before 5 p.m. at the hospital, the outside security footage catches Miss Jew having difficulty moving. She had trouble getting into and out of the police transport. According to the triage intake form on the second visit, it was noted that Miss Jew had a rapid pulse and warm skin. She was also moaning and grunting. Miss Jew told the nurse that she had done speed the day before she was arrested, but that she only used every two weeks or so. So it's not like she was hiding her drug usage. There is no indication in the medical record that the nurse asked for Miss Jew's pain score, the 1 to 10 scale, or took Miss Jew's temperature, even though she noted her skin was warm. It's possible she did these things and didn't write them down, but unlikely. The nurse determined that the fast pulse rate was due to a mix of dehydration, drug use, and general agitation. After waiting for two hours, Miss Jew was seen by the doctor, and this doctor determined that Miss Jew was displaying withdrawal symptoms and behavioral issues. She was treated with another mild sedative and pain reliever and sent back to the jail. I can only imagine how frustrating this was for Miss Jew because as a drug user, she knew what it felt like to be coming down, to be withdrawing from the substance. She knew that's not what this was. For the rest of the night, there are more instances of other inmates hearing Miss Jew moaning. But other than giving her more acetaminophen, nothing was done. The general consensus seemed to be that she was either in withdrawal or faking it, or maybe a little of both, in withdrawal but exaggerating her symptoms. At 8.46, the next morning on August 4th, there was a cell check, and Miss Jew appeared unsteady as she got up. She was given another acetaminophen tablet. She then vomited multiple times over the next hour. At 9.54, Miss Jew pushed the cell call button. She said she couldn't feel her legs and she wanted to go to the hospital. The constable who replied to the call button asked if she was sure, but Sergeant Bond, who was at the desk and overheard the call, said no, she couldn't go. She had already gone twice. 30 minutes later, the constable brought up bringing Miss Jew to the hospital again, and Sergeant Bond once again said no. That would be the third time she went. They were not going to bring her again. Now, if you remember, the discharge instructions were clear that Miss Jew was to return if she got worse. It would be hard to argue that Miss Jew wasn't getting worse here. Based on the CCTV footage of her cell, Miss Jew was unable to get up. She attempted twice to sit up on her bed and fell backwards both times. At 11.23, Sergeant Bond went to Miss Jew's cell to check on her. She said her hands were numb now, and he got her a blanket. She can't feel her legs or her hands, and his solution was a blanket. At noon, Sergeant Bond had two officers go get Miss Jew to take her to the showers. When they got to her cell, she complained again of numbness in her legs, her hands, even her mouth at that point. She stayed lying on her mattress. So these two constables went back and told Sergeant Bond what Miss Jew had said and that she wouldn't get out of bed, so he accompanied them back to her cell. With the three of them in the cell, a constable grabbed Miss Jew by the hand and pulled her up into a sitting position. When the constable's hand slipped, Miss Jew fell backwards again, and she didn't even try to catch herself. She ended up hitting her head on the floor. They then lifted her again to a sitting position, 
that she could not support herself in, so they laid her back down. According to one of the constables in the room, and this has me so heated, Sergeant Bond then leaned over and whispered in Miss Jew's ear that she's a junkie, and this is the last time she was going to be taken to the hospital. It was 20 minutes before they came back to the cell to get her. She was handcuffed, and since she couldn't walk, they dragged her for a bit and then carried her to the police vehicle. Yes, I said they dragged her. This was caught on CCTV. It's noted that at this point, only one person showed any urgency, Constable Sharples, the same one who stayed with her and helped her breathe through the pain that first night. Everyone else was walking around at a normal pace as though nothing serious was going on. When they got to the hospital, they had to get a wheelchair for Miss Jew. And on the CCTV outside HHC, when they get her in that wheelchair, she is limp. Her head is hyperextended back, staring at the sky. And no one even attempted to hold her head up, even though she clearly had no control over her neck. At this point, I just have a hard time believing that they truly thought she was faking it anymore. At this point, they just don't care. Right before being pulled out of the police vehicle, one constable testified that Miss Jew said, I can't move. But by the time she's put in that wheelchair, she does not appear to be conscious. I can't move were her last words. Still, no one was moving with urgency. It wasn't until the constable wheeled her into the emergency room and the nurse saw her that anything was done to help her. The nurse literally grabbed the wheelchair and ran it into the resuscitation room where CPR was administered. Miss Jew had gone into cardiac arrest, likely as they were putting her in that wheelchair. She was still handcuffed. In spite of 50 minutes of attempted resuscitation, Miss Jew was pronounced dead just before 1.40 p.m. on August 4, 2014. On autopsy, it was determined she died of septicemia and pneumonia, the infection originating from an abscess around her broken ribs. Had Miss Jew been correctly diagnosed on her first trip to the hospital, and treated with antibiotics, she very likely would have lived. Had she been treated the second time, she likely would have made it. By the third time, as we see, it was far too late. Unlike most deaths in custody, particularly indigenous deaths, this case got a lot of coverage, in large part due to the family. They did what a lot of families are forced to do. They got vocal. They did every interview they needed to do, even though it meant revisiting their trauma again and again. They held a protest in 2015 on the anniversary of Miss Chu's death. Not just one protest, but multiple around the country. There was an internal police investigation, and they found that 11 of the officers involved were guilty of unprofessional conduct and or not following policy and procedure. But no one was terminated or lost rank. Essentially, they received disciplinary letters to, I assume, be put in their files. A coronial inquest into Ms. Jew's death began in November 2015. Medical staff, officers from the jail, and her family were all interviewed The media covered the inquest extensively, and the comments sections of these news articles are the absolute worst. Not even addressing the overtly racist comments. There were people essentially saying that Miss Jew was a criminal, so who cares? If she didn't break the law, she wouldn't have been in jail, and I guess that means she wouldn't have been subjected to everything that happened. And these comments are garbage. An 18-year-old 
got into some minor legal trouble and couldn't pay her fines. So what they're saying is that at 22, she deserved to suffer and die. They're okay with the crime of defaulting on fines being a death penalty offense in Australia. That's what they're saying. Now, the coroner didn't find this to be a fair punishment for the crime, like all these keyboard warriors out there. She ruled that Miss Jew suffered from unprofessional and inhumane treatment by the prison guards who were indifferent to her suffering. She also found that the medical treatment was substandard. She was clear that she did not fault the first hospital visit as much. Miss Jew's vital signs were good. She wasn't running a fever or complaining about generalized pain or fatigue or any of the usual signs of an infection. Had they done an x-ray, they would have found the pneumonia. I don't know that there's a really strong argument to be made to not have done an x-ray when her presenting symptom is rib pain following an injury. But I'm not a doctor. So on the second visit, where they neglected to even take her temperature, even though her skin felt warm to the touch, that was negligent. They wrote off her high pulse rate. She was presenting enough symptoms to have gotten a proper diagnosis, and she was once again disregarded as malingering. Where the coronial report falls short, in my view, is when she's addressing whether Miss Jew's race played a role in what happened here. I mean, it clearly did. If we look at the data, we can say that if Miss Jew was not indigenous, she would not have been arrested for most of the offenses that led to these fines being levied against her, upwards of $3,600. And that's not even zooming out to the effects of generational poverty and discrimination in work and education that led to her being unable to afford $3,600 in fines. This would be an eight-part lecture series if we got into that. I will link a full study in the show notes that does explore this in depth in relation to Miss Jew's case. If you really want to get into the role of colonialism that continues to oppress Indigenous people today, I certainly do not mean to gloss over it or act like we're not going to talk about it or it's no big deal. It's just a lot more than we can cover in the format of this show. Anyway, back to this case and to the coroner. The coroner said that she does not think the medical staff or the police were motivated by, and this is her quote, conscious deliberations of racism in connection with their treatment of Miss Jew, end quote. But then she goes on to acknowledge that the staff was motivated by preconceptions and assumptions in relation to Aboriginal persons in a more broad societal sense. I'm not ashamed to admit that this was another part I had to read a couple of times to be sure I was clear on what was being said. And what's being said is that the actions of the police and the medical staff were based on racial prejudices, but they weren't aware they were being racist which is also known as implicit bias. I understand the concept of implicit bias very well because that's literally my experience as a white person. We don't even realize how many things we do or think or say that are influenced by institutional and societal biases and racism. We really don't see it. And that's on us to fix. We shouldn't get a whoopsie-daisy, our racism killed somebody pass. Except that's exactly what happened here. The coroner did not recommend anyone be prosecuted criminally in this case. Not even Dion, the boyfriend who caused the injury. Not the nurse and the doctor who didn't even take her temperature. And not the police 
who ignored her being unable to walk as she slowly died in full view of their cameras. No one was to be held criminally responsible. But thank goodness they didn't curse on the street because that is what the law takes seriously. Usually our implicit biases do not kill people, but that's not to say they have no impact. I'm going to leave another link in the show notes. It's for showing up for racial justice. If you are interested in confronting your own biases and you are ready to do the work needed to check those at the door, I definitely recommend checking out Showing Up for Racial Justice. Okay, so no prosecutions, but that didn't mean the coroner had no suggestions. She advised the Western Australian government to do away with jailing people for not paying fines and to put into place a custody notification system for Indigenous people. At the time, they already had a system like this in place in New South Wales and the Australian Capital Territory after a royal commission looking into Aboriginal deaths in custody had recommended it. So just to clarify that, at the time the coroner in Western Australia was suggesting the custody notification system, it had already been recommended once before, and two other parts of Australia had it implemented for over a decade. What happens with a notification system like this is that when an Indigenous person is arrested, the Aboriginal Legal Service is notified. The person is then their client and gets a phone call with ALS. They are asked if they're okay, and they can express any issues they have right then, like if they're in pain or they need medication that was left at home, anything like that. And now we have a lawyer involved who can watch this situation and make sure the police's duty of care toward the detained person is met. Knowing that the ALS is there to advocate for them, people will often open up in ways they'd be hesitant to with the police, including things like suicidal ideation. The ALS website puts it best when they say the custody notification system is not just a phone line, it's a lifeline. And it's not hard to see how this would have helped Miss Jiu. She tried to advocate for herself repeatedly, and it didn't work. She was a poor, drug-using, Aboriginal woman, and she had no influence. She had no power. But if a lawyer was keeping an eye on this situation, and those police and that doctor knew that Miss Jew had someone to report back to, maybe they would have done an x-ray and caught the pneumonia. Maybe they wouldn't have waited to take her to the hospital the second and third time. Maybe they would have taken her temperature. Maybe some of the last words she heard on this earth wouldn't have been someone whispering the word junkie. The information I just gave you, and then some, was given to the Western Australian Premier, Colin Barnett. He got this report and said, pass. He wasn't going to push for either of the things recommended. Now, I don't know Australian politics. I have no idea who this guy is or was or ever will be. But I don't understand why guaranteeing someone who is at risk with a phone consultation with a lawyer was not worth his trouble. And as far as stopping imprisoning people for failure to pay fines, the rest of Australia had stopped doing it. So it's not like this was some revolutionary idea that would rock the whole nation. Beyond that, the math doesn't add up here. In 2018, 433 people were jailed for unpaid fines. It cost the state $1.56 million in expenses and housing. To make that zero out, every single person would have to owe, on average, $3,000, yet most of them owed less. So there was an unwillingness to stop this thing that was disproportionately harming indigenous people and impoverished people, even though it cost the state more money to keep it going. 
And funding was the reason given for why the custody notification system wouldn't work. So they're willing to spend money putting people in jail, but not money on their legal rights. Again, I don't know Australian politics. Maybe Barnett was the best thing since sliced bread otherwise. But fortunately for this situation, he wasn't staying in office forever. He was out, and the custody notification service was implemented in Western Australia in February 2019. And they have very recently stopped the jail for fines policy, which we will talk about in a second. Miss Jew's family was not satisfied with the results, obviously. No one was being held legally responsible because they were only accidentally racist, and the government initially declined the two changes recommended that would have prevented this from happening to anyone else. Basically, at the time, it looked like the only thing that was going to come from this was cops were told to stop being so racist. But the family had been vocal and they were going to stay vocal. The media coverage before the inquest was nothing compared to what happened after, when a lot of the CCTV footage was released. People watched firsthand Miss Jew suffer and watched her be ignored and they were rightfully incensed. In February 2016, an anonymous group started projecting images of Miss Jew and her family on buildings in Perth, which is the biggest city in Western Australia and the capital. They were trying to make it harder for lawmakers to just ignore them. In 2017, the family was awarded $1.1 million and a formal apology from the Western Australia government. The payment was specifically not one out of legal requirement, but moral obligation. Carol, Miss Jew's grandmother who raised her, was surprised by both the payment and the apology, but her preference would have been justice and for those who contributed to her granddaughter's death to be held responsible. The talk about getting rid of the jail for fines continued for a few more years. And then, in September 2019, a 34-year-old Aboriginal woman named Keenan Dickey was arrested for not paying her fines. She was actually arrested when she went to the police for help. She had been robbed and left with a broken rib. While at the hospital, the police came in to talk to her about the incident and take her statement, but when they ran her name, they saw that she had unpaid fines, and they told her she owed $750 in these unpaid fines. They were mostly from traffic tickets. They said she had to take care of those in the next few days. Keenan had asked if she could pay off the fines through community service since she couldn't afford them, and her request was denied since only court-issued fines could be worked off that way. These were tickets from the police, so she had to pay them with cash or spend time in jail. So it's not like Keenan had ignored these. She had tried to pay them off through community service, the one thing she could offer but when that was denied, she didn't have the money to pay them. The next day, when she was discharged from the hospital, Keenan went to the police station to give her full statement about the robbery and assault. She was then arrested for the fines. She was still in pain from her broken rib from the day before, and she said all she could think about was Miss Jew's death. She was straight up terrified. Here she was, getting arrested for not paying fines with a broken rib. You can see why she was scared. An organization called Sisters Inside was contacted, and they paid her fees so that they could get Keenan out of jail, this poor woman. She should have been home, resting from a traumatic experience that had left her injured, and here she was sitting in jail. Sisters Inside has done amazing work in paying off these fines, to get people out of jail. 
When the story of Keenan's arrest hit the news, the Attorney General John Quigley announced he would be introducing legislation within weeks to change the jail for fines law. And this was finally passed in June 2020. All outstanding warrants or fines were dismissed. We are six years from Miss Jew's death, and less than two months ago, the state enacted the change suggested way back at the coronial inquest. Now, being jailed for fines is a last resort. There are more options for paying off the fines. There's more time given and so on. This is a big step and an important one, and I don't want to discount it. But if we don't have a major reform over these low-level arrests that result in the fines, is this going to be enough of a change? These fines can still lead to driver's licenses being revoked and wages being garnished, which greatly impact quality of life and the ability to earn an income if you can't drive to work. And these fines are given for crimes that Indigenous Australians are still much more likely to be arrested for. Indigenous Australians existing in public spaces is still being policed aggressively. We need to see change there. And that's not going to happen so long as people aren't held individually responsible for their roles in the support of institutional racism. They say conflict is the catalyst for change. So there needs to be more conflict for people in authority, for people in power, who allow their implicit biases to win. With the change in the jail for fines law, of course, Ms. Jew's case has been in the media again recently, but also in the wake of the international protests in support of Black Lives Matter. Some of Ms. Jew's family has been active in the Black Lives Matter movement before this. Now that the protests and demonstrations that have been happening over the last few months have been getting more media attention, so has Miss Jew's family. They are doing what they can to stop people from being able to stay in the comfort of their implicit biases. A popular quote going around right now is by American civil rights activist John Lewis, who died in July 2020. It's make good trouble. I'm going to leave you with his words now. My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, say something, do something. Get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble.